everybody. Good afternoon. How are y'all doing today? We hope everybody's doing great. On a sunny day. Sunny today. day. Nice. It was getting nice. Glad to all these clouds. Yes. Stuff that being overcast, so it's nice to get sun. That's a good thing about Texas, you know. You, yeah. You, you do just wait a few days and it'll change, right? It's I lived up north for a while. That wasn't always true up there. Exactly. It would just get gray and stay that way for very, very long periods of time. Yep. So let's see. So here we are on a Monday. Patty and I are still hunkered down. Yeah, we're kind of uh, the word I've invented was COVID jumpy. We're kind of COVID jumpy. jumpy. Right, so yes. we, we've kind of been staying in and, um, you know, avoiding people and wearing masks if we have to go out for something, some small trip and yeah. all that kind of thing. We're pretty sick of it. We are. I, I suggested we get very lackadaisical about it this morning. And I said totally no. <laughs> the main reason is because even though Scott's doing well, he's doing great, he is on some amazingly big that's all i could call it big if money has anything to do with it and thank god for insurance he is on like the biggest drugs you could possibly have in your life every day and it keeps him healthy and it keeps him well but it also does um you know does affect his immune system and we don't want to take any chances we we weren't taking chances but we we were eating out and doing going on. everything yeah much going on out there, but even in early december we we sure were but so. then when it kind of got crazy and so many people we knew yep. were sick and even family and we still haven't celebrated christmas with robbie and savannah tree is still up which i have to say i do love the tree is still up presents are unopened but one of these days we'll be we will we'll be back. We so will. Um, anyway, we did go to church yesterday. I should say we went to class for those of you who were online or in person yesterday. But we snuck in the side door at ten thirty into um, Smith Worship Center so we'd have less contact. And uh, we had a great class. Yes. Lots of people online. Lots of people. So um, so it's good we have this online way so to meet if we, this. if we have to use it. So. We really are. It we, is. we really cannot believe that it's almost two years. We thought this was going to be this yeah. one first, month or two month fix. First week in April 2020 was when we started <laughs> yes. online. Yeah. So, wow. But here we are. That, and that's, we're, we're, well, that's not for everything. First week in no, you and I started online here in my office first week in April. First week, like April fifth. We didn't have any classes before. Oh, that's right. Of course we did. We were we were going live all the way up until in yeah. person. Yeah, yeah. to like March twelfth, and yes. then when it took a couple of weeks to get to get it to all get done. The, uh, yep. we could do this online. Yes, young people do it. Why <laughs> can't, can't we? we do it? <laughs> so, so here we are having fun online, and now we're creating podcasts and videos and everything else, and it's awesome and hey, it's great. Scott's podcast now. Get ready for this, because to me this stuns me. Like I know this guy. I know the work he puts out, and I know it's all wonderful really but 50 we're gonna we're gonna thousand. be there we're, we're gonna be so there in a, another six weeks or so so probably. so close to fifty thousand downloads yeah that, and that's to me blows my mind just plain old bible studies Blow, blows my mind so with no fancy music no 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 okay. no dancers no dancers nothing <laughs> well dancing doesn't work too well on the radio you know 
That's the thing. But that anyway, so okay, enough of this silliness. We're going to press we need on. We get bumper music. You yeah, know, a I lot know. Of radio I know. stars, they have bumper music. That's what all the youngsters tell me. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'll leave it up to them to okay. figure out how to do Alrighty. that. Okay? All righty. I think you better pray. I'm better. Okay. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here today on this Monday afternoon. It's sunny out, and we are come we've come together here to start a journey through a really a very brief letter paul's letter um to titus someone that he has worked with really pretty well from the beginning um and we and we pray that your holy spirit would move among us and um help to open up Paul's letter for us and to hear Paul well so that we can take these words and understand the meaning they have for our own lives as disciples of Jesus Christ and as people who are called to do um, your work. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Patty. So, sure enough, even though I forgot to change the title slide, that was on the screen for a long time before we, you know, got on the screen, then it's, um, we are beginning Titus this week. So, Titus is the third of the pastoral, what are called the pastoral letters, the pastoral epistles, and they're called that because each of them is written to a person in particular. And that, I think, makes them different than letters that Paul is writing to an entire um, uh, church community or all the house churches in a certain city or to a region even. It, it very makes it kind of more particular. Um, not surprised that he talks about different things um, in them than he does in some of his other letters. Titus is someone we really don't know much about Really, uh, it's fairly quick to cover it. He is—he does, he does not appear in the in the Acts, Book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, so we have—we know him from Paul's letters, and in Galatians chapter two, verse one, Paul tells us that. Oh gosh, I guess I better give a little background about Paul. So, well, here's what happens with Paul. Paul's the Pharisee. He is setting out to destroy these, this cult of Jesus. And he's on his way to Damascus to round up Jesus' people when he is visited by the risen Christ. And he is forever changed. And he goes through a period of a short period of time there where he is kind of moving back and forth. Um, but then he goes basically dark. Well, we don't, it's about maybe 14 years or so from, let's say, 35 or 36 A.D. to 48 or 47 A.D., where we have no accounting of what he's doing. It's not recorded for us in the New Testament. His New Test his letters don't really talk about what he's doing, um, but I think it's pretty clear that what he's doing is preparing himself and God is preparing him for this work that Paul will undertake to be the missionary to the Gentiles. So we, for example, in Acts, we come to what we call Paul's first missionary journey, but we only call it Paul's first missionary journey because it's the first one in the book of Acts. Don't assume that means it's the first one, right? Same way we have his letters 
and we're pretty confident that his earliest letters are Galatians or 1 Thessalonians, but we only call him his earliest because we have copies. We shouldn't assume they're his earliest. Something happens during those 14 years. But in any event, he says when after the 14 years are up, he heads to Jerusalem with Titus. Galatians 2.1. He heads to Jerusalem with Titus. So what does that tell us? That he's known Titus for the entire length of the ministry that we do know about from the book of Acts and from the letters that we actually have kept for us in the New Testament. So he's known Titus for longer than he's known Timothy. Do we know how he knew Titus? No, we don't. What do we know about Titus? He seems to be um, Greek-speaking and a Gentile. I'm pretty confident he's a Gentile because he makes a lot of the Jews in Jerusalem angry and upset and so forth. So he's a Greek, he's a Gentile. In a lot of ways, he's a, he's a perfect companion for Paul in Paul's work. And so what happens is Titus shows up in various places where Paul is sending him. He's with, he's with Paul. Paul sends him other places. For example, at the end of 2 Timothy, what did we see? That Paul had sent Titus to Dalmatia, which is... Oops, let me go. Okay, that's all right. Here we go. Here we go. Boom. Right up at the top of the screen, the arrow, it's the same arrow I had up there last week, Dalmatia. That is in the Balkans. So that is where Paul has sent Timothy to do what? <laughs> to do what Paul does. Sure it is. He sent, Timothy, Tim, he sent Titus to Dalmatia to carry the word, to, to begin... Um, some house churches, these communities of Jesus people to teach them, instruct them, to show them a way, the way to identify more leaders, more evangelists who could go out and replicate that work. That's how it happens. It's like ripples in a, in a pond, just over and over. Now, when we come to the letter that we have today, it's written maybe 17 years after the when after the time when Titus and Paul went to Jerusalem. About that length of time. Maybe 65, 66. So a lot of time has passed. And Tim Titus is much trusted. Excuse me if I keep calling him Timothy. Because First and Timothy are usually preached from more than Titus, which is too bad. But anyway, Titus. So Paul, you'll see that Paul... Um, has sent Titus to the island of Crete. And on the map, I have highlighted down in the middle of the Mediterranean, the large island of Crete. Okay? And the um, he has sent Timothy, they're all, it's a large Jewish community in Crete, not surprisingly, given its proximity to Judea, Galilee, Palestine. So, um, and it's a pretty populated place It's because it's strategically important. And so Paul has sent Titus there to oversee the Christian house churches in Crete. And he is providing him with 
Gosh, it all of a sudden got dark in here. I was just bragging on the sunshine. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Wrong button. Okay. All right. So let me let me get the zoom fixed here. I'm going crazy here. Okay. So Titus is going to Crete. He's gonna go like the you know the 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 chief down there. Um, Paul's direct emissary, the chief administrator, whatever you want to think about it. And Paul writes this letter to Titus to help equip him. And I don't think you're going to find anything too surprising in the letter. Um, if you understand that Titus is going to be, is one of the leaders in the early church, he is there to do the work of leading and guiding these house churches, identifying leaders for the various house churches, um, helping to spread sound doctrine and sound practice as a disciple and to confront um, uh, wrong doctrine and poor discipleship. So, which, which all sounds very familiar because it's the same thing we encountered in, in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. And none of that could be a surprise to us, right? So that's really about all we know about Titus. There's not, there's not too much more we need to know. I am with those who believe that Paul wrote this letter. I'm not persuaded by the arguments against it. And, um, but in any event, um, certainly the early church accepted this. The early, the, the early church historian Eusebius placed, Tim, placed Titus at Crete um, and uh, accepted this, this letter as genuinely from Paul. So that's, that, that's pretty good to be good enough for me. So, all right. So, Patty, anything before we just sort of plunge right in because the first paragraph is really important. The first three verses really are like the foundation for a lot of stuff that's coming. So it'll take us a little bit to get through the first three verses. Okay, I'm going to sidetrack just one little bit. I love to be sidetracked. in case anybody was wondering, yes, the Dalmatian dogs that we all love did come from Dalmatia, where Titus was. Wow, yes. you already like have a Google over there in I front of you during it. class, don't I you, Patty? I wondered about it, you know, <laughs> last week. I thought, oh my goodness, I wonder if that's possible. But sure enough, it is. That's It's traced back to present-day Croatia, which uh, in its historical region of Dalmatia, and that is, huh. there were just dog breeders then who bred certain kinds of pointers and a spotted Great Dane together, and it came up with, over the years, what we now know as our very beloved Dalmatians. And how many did they have? They had a hundred and one. Oh my. We're we're really incorrigible, Patty. I don't know. That, that people are going to do something with us at, at some point in all of this. Oh, so. there had to be somebody out there wondering if Dalmatian was yeah. the place. No, I, I. that's cool. That's great. It's just a ridiculous joke I tried to make, which is crazy. But you participated, so there yes, we go. Yes, you asked me, and you had no idea I was going to say that. <laughs> no, so. I didn't. All right. No, I didn't. Okay, chapter 1, verse 1. So here's here's the grounding in this. Paul, and I'm going to teach you today two Greek words for time. Just to, that's a teaser. Two, two different Greek words for time, and knowing the difference is really helpful and important. Okay, so Paul, a servant of God, 
really in the Greek, it's a slave of God. We've talked about this many times in my classes. Paul can do nothing but what he does. So, you know, slave has connotations in our world, which are, which, you know, I guess in any world, which are tragic. Um, but Paul clearly, Paul clearly understands that he, he is doing what he must do. Okay, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is one who is sent forth. That's how Paul understands himself. Now, in the NIV, the following phrase reads this way. To further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, in the NRSV, which I think is a better translation right here, it reads like this. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So, he's an apostle. Why has God chosen him for this? For the... Th for the sake of the elect and for the sake of the truth. And, and I think that's a little better way to think about it this than, than, than to put to, to further the faith of the elect or to further the, the truth. because Paul would see himself in this hmm, project of coming to know the truth, right? For the sake of the faith of God's elect, right? So that we would come to trust God and to understand what that means, right? And for the sake of the knowledge of the truth, what we proclaim to the world is true, plain and simple. It's not an opinion. It's not my truth or Patty's truth or your truth. Like there is no objective reality. There is an objective reality and that objective reality begins with God. Whatever the philosophical fashions of the day might be or whatever the particular cultural fashions of the day might be, the truth is still there. Wasn't that the X-Files line, the truth is out there? The truth or, is out yeah, there. Yeah, the truth is out there, right? The truth is there. And what we proclaim is that truth. Indeed, it is a truth that is revealed to us by God, has been revealed by God to Paul. A truth that we would lack the resources to discover most of. But God, out of God's love and mercy, has revealed the truth to us through his prophets through his work in this world, through his son Jesus Christ, through the pages of scripture, which are God-breathed, as we saw the last two weeks, right? So, so Paul lays out who he is. He's a servant of God. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the sake of the faith of God's elect, that's you and me, that's the community of God's people. That's all that means. It's a community of God's people. And for the sake of the knowledge of the truth. 
And why does the truth matter? Because the truth is what can lead us to godliness. That's the thing. You know, everybody has in their head a certain understanding of the way that things that the way the things are, the way the world operates. And that understanding is what drives their behavior. Everybody's behavior is driven by something. If you believe that everybody in the world is out to cheat you and steal from you and trick you, then that's going to shape your behavior, right? If you if your view of the world is that everybody can be utterly trusted. <laughs> That's going to shape your behavior. Now, neither extreme, of course, is really very close to reality, right? Because the world is a mixed group. But everybody's behavior is driven by the way they understand the world to work. And what we should strive for is to have an understanding of the world that is as close to reality, the way it really is, as we can. Science does that for us all the time, right? Science helps us get to a deeper understanding of the way that things are, and that helps us to, to live. It helps us to, to live better. It has helped us nowadays. We live like kings and queens of four or 500 years ago. Probably less time than that. And... and Theology and scripture help us to grasp the nature of reality. And so the more that we as people, God's people, come to understand who God is and come to know God and the character of God and, and come to know Jesus and the character of Jesus and the story of Jesus' work and the story of Paul, all of that shapes our understanding of the world and allows us to live in better alignment with with reality, you know, because Jesus was born, Jesus was crucified, Jesus was resurrected. Those are all true, true claims. So, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Godliness is living in God's path, right? A holy life, a pure life. Um, in the hope of eternal life. Eternal life. Eternal life is what you think. It is stepping into eternity with God and, and living and existing with God and one another into what we can't even imagine for eternity. Time without end. Um, you know, uh, Lauren uh, Gerlach and I were talking this, this morning and, and she called me to ask me, because she was, said she was like an at a McDonald's drive-thru or something, and this thought popped into her head like, are we ever finished? As persons. And my response to her was, no, I certainly hope not. That, because if you're finished 
as a person, then there's no opportunity for growth. And I hate to imagine an existence without the opportunity for growth. So, yeah, I'll say, so my answer to her was no, I don't think we're ever really finished. You know, I, I'm, I'm with people, other people I know who want, who, who hope that, you know, in eternity we'll have the opportunity to read all the books we didn't get a chance to read in this life. But anyway, okay. So in the hope of eternal life. So remember that this hope is the, is the assurance, the sure ground, right? It, it's not like a lottery prediction. It's a sure ground in the sureness, in the assurance of eternal life. That's what Paul's talking about. Which God, who does not lie, right? God is the truth teller. God's not a liar. In Scripture, the devil's the liar. God is not the liar. Think back to, I think it was Second Timothy. Paul specifically wrote that the devil was the liar. God is the truth teller. He does, God doesn't lie. You know, I, I encounter things people write in the world or put on Facebook or wherever and it is almost as if they think God lies. God doesn't lie. God is truth. God is goodness. So God God doesn't lie. We're, we're not to either. Which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. Okay, so this hope of eternal life, which God, who doesn't lie, promised before the beginning of time. So there's one of the first time words. Now, it's a word you really already know, because in the Greek it's chronos. K-R-O-N-O-S, which you'd bring into English as C-H-R-O-N-O-S. Right? Like in a chronometer. It's the, the word chronos is just the straightforward passing of time, marking out years, days, months, minutes, circuits. That, that, that's what the word is talking about. Just to pass, just this thing, time that we're all moving through. You know, what's so fascinating to me is that we all use the word time and we can measure it, I guess, though that is even a bit elastic, according to Einstein. But when it comes to actually defining it and knowing what it is, I, I remember years ago, and I'm old enough for it to be many, many years ago, the Scientific American had a cover story on time. And I was fascinated by the fact that in this cover story, they had multiple quotations from St. Augustine who had wondered about time. Because the truth is, we talk about it, we use it, we measure it, but, but we can't really we can't really define it. Not really. But chronos is this word that, that speaks to this passage. Perhaps you in your own time have experienced places where 
time seems to change. You know, if you get involved in a real creative effort, if you're like an artist or something, or whatever, I don't know what other endeavors people encounter this, you can get, you can get caught up into it, and the hours have flown by, and it only seems like minutes. So what is time in that regard? How well are we at assessing time? But right here, Paul is just saying that God, um, uh, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Well, what the heck is that? That's what I was just going <laughs> to say I can't you. tell you. When do we... Okay. <laughs> See, you can't, no, you can't use the when word because the when word is a time word. Okay, before the beginning of time, so... <laughs> Time begins... Boy, no, you can't use it. No, 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 no. You can't say before the beginning of when. It's just... It's 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 like trying to say to yourself, well, like, who made God? Or what was there before the beginning of time? Well, those are all time words. So before is a time word. So I can't use it. Right? It's really not... He's What is he trying to convey? That as God always has been, because, see, you and I, we can't really escape in our mind the construction of time, right? Right. You can't, you can't have in your mind... existence without time. You can try, but I'm going to tell you, you're going to fail. Just, just try, you will fail. We can't really do that. So what he's saying is, before there was anything, before there was anything, right? God promised this eternal life. And the hope of eternal life, which God, who doesn't lie, promised before the beginning of anything. Like before the beginning of Genesis 1-1. Even though the word before doesn't mean anything. Because the word before doesn't mean anything in the context of eternity. And so if your head is spinning and your shoulders, it's okay. It's this God stuff. We're not God. <laughs> right? So it's It's okay. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised from all time. And which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light. All right. So, way back, before the beginning, God promised and brought to fruition a a season which has now arrived. Now, that word season in your NIV is the other time word. That word is a little different. That word is the word Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, K-A-I-R-O-S. And what that is speaking to is a moment, a season, 
typically something where something happens. It, it, it's a moment where something happens. You know, you have a Kairos moment. Is a, if you ever ha have had in your life a moment when you, when you realize something really important or your life was put on a different path or things seem to change for you probably dramatically. That was a Kairos moment. Well, the Kairos moment that Paul has in mind is the arrival of Jesus, which is the revelation of God's plan. So he promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed Kairos moment, his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So what Paul preaches, see this is my, I have my own silly way to talk about these things, which I used yesterday in my class at 11 o'clock. So the Kairos moment is God's big thing. That the God promised, let me put some words around. God promised before the creation of the universe, before the creation of anything, that God would rescue us in a season when God does God's big thing. And that is what Jesus is about. I, in my 11 o'clock class a few weeks ago, I had this slide. Even in my sermon on January 2nd, I called it in-breaking, the in-breaking of God into time and and, and human history to take on human flesh. You're not going to find anything more dramatic, a bigger inbreaking than that. There can never be anything bigger than that. That's the season Paul is talking about. That it has happened now in Jesus. And Paul is entrusted with the work of carrying out that good news. Preaching. That's what preaching is. Preaching is the carrying out of that of that good news. Preaching isn't about telling you how to lose 40 pounds or be a better mom. It is about telling the world that yes, everything has changed. The big Kairos moment has come. It was 2,000 years ago and you're still in the aftermath of it as we wait its full consummation with the return of Jesus. But yeah, 2,000 years ago, something you can't even comprehend happened when God was born in human flesh and went to a cross, a Roman cross, obediently. Right? So the question this might bring, if we were in a classroom together, I'm sh pretty sure I would get a question about, so did God know from the beginning, before Adam and Eve even, even created Adam and Eve, that they were going to misuse the freedom that God gave them. Because I've gotten that question two or three dozen times. And I think that on the basis of this place, a place in Ephesians, I think there's one in Galatians and elsewhere, the answer would be yes. that God knew 
that when he created free people, they were going to misuse that freedom. And that God promised even before he created those free people, that God would rescue us from our own failings in the person of Jesus. Now I think if, if you were, if you go to St. Andrew, that's what Arthur was getting about in his sermon a couple weeks ago, about, about, about Jesus knowing, about God knowing, not just in the moment, but from all time, what it was going to take to rescue humanity. Because God had to create free beings. Free beings that could screw up as well as get it right. And if you look at humanity, we screw up a lot. And why did he have to create free beings? Because God wanted beings whom God could love and who would love God. And love to be loved requires Freedom, liberty. Nobody wants to be loved by a robot. Nobody wants to be loved by artificial intelligence. I just saw a movie about that. Nobody wants to, you know, no, you want to be loved willingly and freely. You don't want to be loved for your money. You don't want to be, no, you want somebody to love you for who you are, freely, with no, no threat, no bribery, none of that. So, and it is, so why does God create? Because it's in God's character. Because God is love. That's my answer to that question. God creates because God is love. I mean, I'm sure God likes tall mountains and lovely beaches and blue oceans and all that stuff, but that is not why creation exists. God created in order to create a people who would love God and whom God could love. In the words I quote too often from Professor Simon Chan, God made the world in order to make the church. He made the world in order to make the people. You see? That's crucial to understand. I think it's so spot on the way he put that. And and here Paul is just saying, wow, okay. So so this this puts the whole kind of kind of brings everything right to the forefront, doesn't it? I mean this is like the whole the, the whole biblical story, the whole gospel story in a few sentences. That God who doesn't lie, you know. promised before the beginning of time that there would be a season. I'll, I'll call it, uh, how about this? How about I call it a season of salvation? The season of rescue. The season when humanity was made right with God. And that season was the season of Jesus. In his birth, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection. I don't really have to try to pull all those apart. It is in the incarnation and it's 
and the implications of the incarnation, that we see God stepping in to to rescue us, and that has it is certainly necessary, and God knew it would be necessary. So, does that generate any thoughts or questions from people? That whole little something well, Lynn, or other. Lynn just put, so glad you have explained this in this way. This great love freely given both ways. It is absolutely. So, you know, I'm with you, Lynn. I went to church for, well, I mean, I went to church basically there, there were a few years where I was really lost in the wilderness, but I went to church basically from the time I was a little kid. And I've heard, I've heard thousands of sermons. And honestly, most of them were kind of disconnected from anything. They were inspirational moments or whatever, but they, they weren't. Nobody ever explained to me, really, why is it that when Jesus says, that the two great commandments are to love God and to love others. What that means, other than love is good. Okay, fine, fine. But why that? Why this? And and to take that understanding that that's what God wants from us and put it with the understanding that God is love and that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. You take those very few little verses from John 3.16. <laughs> someplace, someplace, where Jesus offers up the two great commandments and in First John, right? And, and, you, and you bring those together and you, oh my gosh, yes. And so then you read Simon Chan who says, ah, you see, yes, yes, grasshopper. <laughs> God made the world in order to make the church. Understand what God's purpose is. God's purpose here isn't big mountains and lovely oceans. No, 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 no. God's purpose is the people. People who can love. Who have the capacity to love. Who have the freedom to love. And when you have the freedom to love, you have to have the freedom to not love. I, I've never discovered any way around that. I don't think it exists. So, anyway. Beautiful stuff, though, like a beautiful beach or mountains or can point you to God. They can point us to God, exactly. That's Romans That's Romans chapter 1, exactly. They can all point us to God. We enjoy them. God has given it to them, given, given them to us for our enjoyment, right? And we do, and they bring us a great deal of happiness and joy and pleasure and uh, good times. Um, but God's creation is first and foremost about the people. About the people. And we have to let that drive our, our values. Right? That's why people have to come first. Right? It's, it's Jesus told us, love God, love others. The people have to come first. So, anyway... Enough preachifying there. I'm, I'm crossing the line here, I think. Okay, so, and and this, to, go, to finish up at the end of verse 3, this preaching that Paul does has been entrusted to him by the command of God, our Savior, entrusted to him. It's like it's in a beautiful box 
this preaching, this good news, this gospel that's been handed to Paul, and he takes it very seriously. And he wants, to, he wants Titus to take it seriously. He wanted Timothy to take it seriously. He wants everybody to take it seriously. Because it's the truth. And when you begin to grasp the truth, you begin to grasp two things, I guess, really. One, your distance from God and the love that God has to pull you to God. So, all right, verse 4, to Titus, my true son, that would mean as like protege, they're not related, nobody thinks that, to Titus, my true, my, you could maybe use the word faithful, my loyal, um, NRSV will say, I think it says my loyal child, I like my true son, it sounds a little more grown up. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith. Yes, our common faith. They're Christians. They share a common faith. We share a common faith. We share a common faith with millions and millions, a billion people, two billion people around the globe. However many number of Christians there are. We share a common bond, a common faith. We are brothers and sisters together in this family that God has created. So it says to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace, there we go, grace. I loved um, when Lauren said in her sermon on Saturday that grace was bad math. She asked me if I ever heard the phrase bad math in relationship to grace. I said, well, I did a lot of bad math in my life, but no, I never thought of it that way. But it's a good way. That's a good little phrase. It's bad math. It doesn't make sense. It's God's unmerited favor. There's no balancing of the equations. As she put it, there's no solving for X. Um, like we learned in our algebra class, no. Grace is God's unmerited favor poured out upon undeserving people. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. So it's grace and peace, that peace that passes all understanding. The peace that we all want, the peace that, boy, is that, a, is that something the world craves for? That's one of the sad things about a culture which seems to be moving further and further from the truth of Christ is that they are moving further and further from the source of peace and are then surprised that suicide levels are up, anxiety levels are up, drug overdoses are up, that all of these manifestations of people who are troubled and lost, that all of that is on the increase. Well, of course it's on the increase. If you move further and further from the true, the genuine, the actual source of peace, how could you be surprised? I'm not surprised. Not surprised at all. It, it, it's... It's like we live in a culture which insists upon slowly, you know, coming apart. Just little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit. Um, Charles Murray wrote a book, I don't know, 15 years ago now called, he's a sociologist, controversial, but a good sociologist, called Coming Apart, talking about America. Coming apart. And when in that coming apart, of course, peace is lost. So um, 
grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Okay? So, um, all right. Let me get a drink of water here. I've got myself all worked up. Patty, you want to open the blinds just a little bit? Sure. We'll close them up if, if it starts to get sunny again. But right now, um, that's okay. That's probably good. I was relying a tomb. The my camera here can kind of oh, or the system can brighten it up and darken it up. It but I was it brightened you up quite a bit. Yeah, there. yeah. Here we go. You'll see in 20 seconds. It's going to be looking good. All right. Now, so after that, right after Paul has set the foundation for this letter to Titus in these opening verses, um, he's going to turn to talking to Titus about the mission he's on. Um, a few commentators said it's kind of like, you know, <clears throat> you take over a new job and you find on your desk a letter of encouragement and instruction and help that would design to help you do a good job in your new job. And that's kind of what Titus says, because he's, he's, he's in Crete, and um, the church remembers him as the Bishop of Crete. Uh, so um, this, is gonna, this is about how to go about this work that he is there to do. So Paul says in verse 5, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. So do we have a record of Paul visiting Crete? No. Does he imply here that he did? Yes, I think. So, it might be something that Luke just didn't know about and thus didn't include in the book of Acts, or it's probably something a place that Paul went after he was released from prison at the end of the book of Acts. Remember, I when we before we began 1 Timothy, we talked about the fact that 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, if you're going to accept that they are written by Paul, you're because of what's in them, you're kind of driven to accepting that Paul was released at the end of the book of Acts, did more work, and then was imprisoned a second time and martyred. And that is the tradition of the church about what happened. So I don't think it's a stretch at all. I do think that's what happened. And so probably at some point Paul visited Crete. He did what he always does. He creates house churches, gets them started, and then moves on. Titus he leaves behind to help build them and encourage them and grow them and solidify them, right? So he says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So, Crete is a pretty populated place, and so imagine that there are house churches in various towns, and maybe there are two or three house churches in some towns. The elder, the presbyter in the Greek, would be the one who, over, who helped lead, who helped shepherd them, the pastor to those house churches, Right? Um, 
and these elders typically in this society would be older people. People who were seen as experienced, having wisdom. The Greek word sort of speaks to that. That's why we it's often translated elders. It's not we the church use of that word came after sort of the Greek use of that word. Does that make sense? Right. So appoint elders in every town as I directed you, Titus. And then he's gonna go on through this list of the ideal the ideal leader. An elder must be blameless. Okay, meaning that an elder has to have, be a person of good reputation. Be a person who is well thought of as being upright and honest and virtuous. Okay, no complaints there. That makes sense. Faithful to his wife. Um, yeah, you know, in as I've we not I haven't talked about this in a while. This comes from the Greco-Roman world, okay? In the Greco-Roman world, husbands were not expected to be faithful to their wives. As long as the husband didn't dally with another man's wife, the husband could dally with any woman he wanted to, and nobody would think anything of it, and his wife wasn't supposed to think anything of it. Now, I'm guessing in real life it didn't always work that way, <laughs> but that was the cultural norm, that husbands had the freedom to engage in sex wherever they wanted, um, except for another man's wife. But for the Christians, no, no, no. The elder must be faithful to his wife, a husband of one wife, faithful. Not multiple wives, not a wife and a few mistresses, not a wife and a few girlfriends. Nope. Faithful, faithful, faithful. That's been a driving piece of the biblical witness from the beginning, even back when I know that they practiced polygamy and stuff for cultural reasons. And it, But it doesn't mean it was God's intention. It's just the world that they lived in. God's intention was... One man, one woman, a husband, a wife, Genesis chapter 2. Um, and to be faithful. Indeed, the whole imagery in the Bible of the people of God chasing after pagan gods, the imagery is around being committing adultery against God. Because God's the husband, the people are, are the wife, uh, and... Um, when they go chasing after pagan gods, they're committing adultery because the covenant between God and his people is like a marriage covenant. That's the idea. So, of course, faithful to his wife. A man whose children believe. Okay. Um, he should be looking for, for leaders whose children are, are part of the faith and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Which I would translate it as, make sure you choose men who don't have teenagers. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so you want children who are a part of this, part of the Christian faith, part of the Jesus movement, and 
children who are, I mean, wild and disobedient is out there. It doesn't mean they have to, you expected to find children who were perfect and little, little quiet, little sit in the corner. No, but they weren't to be wild and disobedient. In a world, again, this is not our culture. This is their culture. Greco-Roman culture, wild, disobedient, wow. Boys, not boys, girls. not girls, all boys. Rampant, just so many opportunities to go beyond anything you and I would consider to be wild and disobedient. So, you know, nope, the Christians lived differently from the people around them. And the elder and his family are to be living differently from the people around them. And then he says, seven, since an overseer, that's an overseer is somebody's in charge of something. Since an overseer manages God's household, the house church, he must be blameless. Okay? Um, in the NRSV, it talks about being a good steward of God's household, which is closer to the Greek than the way the NIV translators did it. And, you know... I bring that up because we use the word stewardship a good bit at the church, not as much as we used to. Um, but whenever you were going to raise money for the next year's operating budget, it was a stewardship campaign, right? Were we being good stewards of what God has given us? And I don't remember an essay I read 20 years ago by Leonard Sweet talking about the problem is that most of us don't ever encounter the word steward anywhere else unless it's on a cruise ship. And you have the steward who takes care of your cabin. Otherwise, pretty much we hear it there, and then we hear it at church. He said, really, the better word to use is to be a trustee of God's household, because that captures it. Because the house churches are entrusted to these shepherds, are entrusted to the leaders, entrusted to Paul, entrusted to Titus. The resources we have in our lives are entrusted to us by God. And the question is, will we manage them well? Will we be faithful to the trust that has been placed in us by God to use them well? So... But the NIV translators, they kind of take some of that and they massage it a little bit and they get to the point. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing. You ever know anybody who's overbearing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I almost went to work for a guy like that one time. This was a guy, so when I worked at BF Goodrich, I'll just tell you this quick story. He was really... A jerk. I mean, I have, I have stronger words I would use, but I'm a, trying to be a good Christian man, so I'm not. So one day, Rick is just, he's a big fella. He is just so mad, righteously angered by something at the office that he turns and with, he throws his head back and struts into his office and he slams the door behind him. And he slams the door so hard that he can't get it open. And they have to send for maintenance guys from across the street at the big B.F. Goodrich Akron plant to come 
and get him out of this room because it's all this prefab kind of bolted together stuff and he has wrecked it all and he's trapped in there and yeah Rick was an overbearing guy not quick tempered ah gosh wouldn't the world be so much better if people really did just count to 10 before they responded There is so much wrong in this world that is born out of that quick first response to something. And so not being quick-tempered is surely virtuous, right? Not given to drunkenness. Doesn't mean he can't imbibe. But drunkenness? Of course not. Paul preaches self-control. Have control of who you are. You know, nothing good happens after midnight, Paul says. <laughs> Even if you're a happy drunk, no. <laughs> drunkenness, no, no, no. Not given to drunkenness. And again, you know, we think we know what drinking is in our world. In this world, oh man. So not given to drunkenness, not violent. But of course not, right? You can't have a reputation for violence. How is that a witness to Jesus? Think about all of these as being, if, if, if we embraced one of these, if we were overbearing or quick-tempered or drunken or violent or pursuing dishonest gain, what kind of witness would that be for Jesus? Not a good one. Not a good one. You know, so Christians sometimes they say, well, we all the time, we get tired of being called hypocrites. You know, and I used to be more sympathetic to that than I am. And now my, my honest response most of the time would, I would be to, well, straighten up, you know. Embrace the virtues. It's the way to live, dude. <laughs> Rather, he writes in verse 8, this elder, this leader, he must be hospitable, right? Welcoming. Welcoming has a very big tradition in the Jewish religion, very big tradition in the Christian church. He must be welcoming. One who loves what is good. <sighs> loves what is good. Now, there are a lot of things in life that are good. It is caring for others. It is kindness. It is compassion. I would throw in many things. Beautiful mountains. Great art. A well-crafted movie. Things, things, things that, that point us to God and show us what God's people are capable of accomplishing when they use the gifts God has given them. How about that? One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, as opposed to drunken, right? One who is self-controlled. One who is not quick-tempered, but one who is self-controlled. Upright, not blameless, upright. You see how these two lists 
the list of not being and the list of being are kind of, they kind of fit together. Be blameless. <laughs> be upright. Don't be drunken. Don't be a drunk. Be self-controlled. Okay? Who is self-controlled, who is upright, holy, and disciplined. Holy means living a life consistent with the way God wants us to live it. And disciplined is having enough control of yourself to be able to live that life, avoid the quick responses that hurt, to avoid grabbing at the baubles and bangles of life that entice you and tempt you, right? That does take some discipline. There was, what was it? Just not long ago, there was an admiral in the Navy who was speaking to the graduating class, I think, at Annapolis. And he said, okay, I'm going to tell you one rule in life. <laughs> one rule. One rule in life. Make your bed every morning. And it got a little pressed because it seemed like, really? That's what he said to them. Make your bed every morning. And what's his point? You know? Begin your day in a disciplined way. Just make the bed every day. I guess he might have gone on with that list. You know, take a shower every day. Call mom. I don't know, whatever it might be. But he said, make your bed. He said, make your bed every day. Be disciplined in life. It's, it's, um, uh, it's part of what, as parents, we have to teach our children, I think. And we teach it to our children principally by being disciplined ourselves. And I think so often discipline is doing, is having the strength to make yourself do something you don't want to do. <gasps> like make the bed. Okay, so verse 9, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. What is that trustworthy message? That is sound Christian doctrine. He must hold firmly. So Dan is putting it to the University of Texas. So, oh, he gave the remarks at the University of Texas. Might have. Might have. I hope that hopefully those Texas kids took it to heart. So verse 9, this elders, these elders, these leaders that you're going to search for and hopefully find must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. They need to know their doctrine. They need to hold to the doctrine. They need to not chase after every whim and current in the culture so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. It is why Christians have always emphasized learning. Always have emphasized learning. Um, there was uh, uh, um, Jerome who was the creator of the Vulgate, the big, famous translation of the Bible into Latin about 400 A.D., said, said you know, the, the, the pastor without learning can lead a virtuous life. It, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. But he's not equipped to really lead the flock forward because he's not equipped to resist you know the, the the all the beliefs that will come swooping in trying to entice people away from the truth and boy oh boy i think that is 
That is true. That's, I think it's probably always been true, right? It's certainly true in our world. I was just, I read an article recently and I got the book the other day. It's a book about, of all things, the Trinity, called Simply Trinity. And it was written by a Baptist, I think he's a Baptist uh, pastor and teacher, who said what he thought was happening among even the, what you would think would be the most biblical portions, biblically uh, centered churches in America, is what he calls Trinity Drift. That we, that, that we are slowly but surely drifting further and further from the orthodox understanding of the Trinity without grasping all the weaknesses that will come with that. And so I haven't, I've just started the book, but anyway, it, it gets to this point that Paul wants the elders to know the gospel, to know the sound doctrine, to know the, the truth of what's carried in like the Apostles' Creed so that they can, they can know it, they can encourage people in it, and they can refute those who come opposing it. So, there we go. So, wow. I think it's getting... It is? I'm stopping. I just saw that it's almost 4.15. Huh. Okay. Well, there we go. We'll save the Cretans for next week. The people of Crete. The Cretans. <laughs> well, you're going to find you're gonna find this famous proverb that predates Paul right here in the middle of the next paragraph. Yeah. I know, it goes, yeah, it has a long history. It has a long history. There's so many of those funny little things in the Bible that yeah, you have you'll be no busy. idea. You'll be busy over there on Google, <laughs> won't you? Like yesterday. <laughs> Looking them up. Like yesterday with your jot and tittle, you know? Yeah, yeah. Who would know that? Or the Dalmatian the, dogs. Yes. Yeah. Weird. Jot and tittle, those little tiny yes. Hebrew, tiny markings. And of course the Maltese dogs came from Malta, too. They like did. They were, they, they were dogs of kings. They were bred to be... There's only half of me. King's companions. Well, okay. I don't know what to do about that. There's all of you. Okay. Thank you. All righty. Well, okay. Good, good class. Yeah, good yeah class. there's a lot of good stuff in that opening of the, the letter you here. know, I, I don't know if other people feel like me, but I, I imagine there's some people out there like me that if I was just reading this on my own, I would have read through that first paragraph, been done in five minutes, even if I would have read it a second time, another five minutes, and not really taking it apart and seeing truly everything that Paul was trying to For the first 50 years him. of my life, that was it. it would, I would read the Bible, and it would kind of go in one ear and out the other. Not because I didn't care, but Well, if you I don't just, have anybody you know, to really hash it over with or someone to tell you exactly what it all means. And to make you slow down. See, I make them slow down. Yes. That's why it takes us an hour and 15 minutes to yes. get through nine verses. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and I bet we'll be reviewing them next week. So um, anyway, but that's, that's what has made us better Bible readers. So. I think it has. So. It is. Anyway, thank you so much, all of you, for um, being here with us today on this beautiful, a little bit chilly Monday, right. Sunday, Monday, Monday. Monday. <laughs> Yesterday Monday. was not sunny or pretty. Um, please close with me in prayer. We hope that maybe tomorrow, if you're free at noon, that you'll join us again for the uh, Gospel of John.
John chapter 10, and that we're probably going to begin to get into the story of the raising of Lazarus tomorrow. Oh we'll see. We're getting okay. close because that's chapter 11. And we're going to at least do the second half of chapter 10 tomorrow, maybe into the early part of chapter 11. And can I guess that there'll be a very long segment on resuscitation versus <laughs> resurrection? You know Have me I too been well. married to you for too long? <laughs> There's but it's a... <laughs> very good. It's used constantly all the time by people on TV. You know, how we resurrected things or whatever and it's one of the one of the one of the books that Lauren has read at seminary is a book on doctrine by a professor named Beth Felker Jones at Wheaton at Wheaton or she's from graduated from there. I don't know where she is actually being a professor now. But on Twitter she put Okay, list five things that you could talk 30 minutes about Ooh. without any preparation. You know what the first thing was on our list? Resurrection. The resurrection of the body. I said, oh, baby, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that. Oh, boy. Okay. All right, honey. Gosh. That's, that's, that's kind <laughs> of I a, thought that was pretty awesome. That is. That she is. said that. All right. Okay, let's, let's pray. Close. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us together today. Here we are, still very early in January. It's a great time, Lord, to start a new book and to just get back into your word and do it together. Do it in a community of people who, who are striving, God, to know you and love you better. We pray, God, that you would watch over each person gathered here today with us. We pray for them, Lord, and we pray for their families. And we ask you, God, to hold each one of us close to you, Lord. We pray that we would feel your presence in our lives. And we pray, God, again, that when we don't, we need to reset ourselves because we're the ones that have moved away from you. We pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives every day, God. Not just for the big decisions and choices we have, but for the little ones too. And help that come more and more naturally to us, Lord something that would resonate with you, something that we're doing, God, that would be in your favor. We pray, Lord, that you would hold us all close, bring us back together again next Monday as we actually start getting into the book of Titus. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for sending the gift of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Adios, Bye, everybody. See you guys. Bye-bye.